0: Some of you have probably read C.S. Lewis. That man had a big impact on me, and maybe he's had an impact on some of you too. He uh, was prescient. He was a genius. Um, He was a good Christian apologist, and he wrote a book titled The Abolition of Man. And if you haven't read it, or it's been a while, basically he discussed the importance of moral virtue and how virtue has a divine origin. And in the book, it's, it's essentially, it's an argument uh, against moral relativism and for absolute moral principles. And he famously said, uh, in The Evolution of Man, he said, We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. And by stating that, he implied that mankind needs people that have exemplary character and courage. Ordinary people who are capable of extraordinary things. Unfortunately, he also implied that our culture doesn't develop these types of people. And then we wonder where they are when we need them. And so I'm sure we've all been in a situation that wasn't good and we looked around at a problem and we thought, hey, this is really bad. Somebody should do something about this. Right? I think it happens a lot. It happens on big scale, it happens on a personal scale. There's a lot of situations in our lives, I think, where um, things don't seem fair, or there's insurmountable odds, or there's a really strong opposition, um, and we think somebody should do something about it. Uh, one example is people have been paying excessive taxes for a long time, and they're chasing against oppressive governments, right? The founding fathers of this country had to deal with that. It took them enormous personal courage and sacrifice, and they were men of virtue, the outcome of their work is that we still have a country it's lasted over 200 years, and it's been an enormous blessing. That's on a big scale. I think on a smaller scale, this need for courage occurs a lot more frequently. Um, think about lots of things that we see need fixed, lots of problems. County budget maybe needs um, better management, businesses need managers um, that do the right thing for their employees or their customers when no one's looking. there's always going to be these types of needs, and we can readily identify the issues. But I think many times we think there needs to be someone to step in there and fix that problem. But who are they? Where are they? Our culture needs these types of people that have virtue and courage. And God needs them too. I don't know if you've thought about that recently. God needs people to help accomplish his plans and purposes. Throughout Scripture, God uses people. And so, still, he's looking for people that are willing to do the right thing. Even in difficulty. And so we're going to see that play out a little bit today in the book of Judges. And before we go to the text, we're going to be in Judges chapter 3, by the way, if if you want to turn there. I I guess I just wanted to establish kind of where we are and where we are going in Judges. Um, If you'll remember Judges records the history of the Hebrew people and the promised land of Canaan, and the problem was essentially is that they had a hard time completely conquering it and then retaining control of it. And initially we saw that the, the people had good military success and prosperity, but it came when they followed God's commands and when they relied on God. But then we saw how easily the people forgot God, and they began to rely on themselves, and they did whatever they wanted sort of like every other person I've met. And this is a theme that's repeated over and over in Judges. Thankfully, we see God working though too. He's got compassion on his people. He sends the judges, uh, which are military leaders. They're also civic leaders. or legal arbiters. Um, and they they're sort of function as deliverers or saviors of his people. And so we just see this pattern that's The people sin and disobedience, and then they have a consequence, and then God's compassionate, and he hears them, and then he delivers them. And we can think of that as the judges' cycle, and it sort of spins throughout this book. And that's where we're at in chapter 3 when we pick it up. So if you look at the scripture with me, I'm going to start in verse 7. It says, The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of cushan Rishitim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served cushan Rishitim eight years. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. When he went out to war... The Lord gave Kushan Rishatim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Kushan Rishatim. Then the land had rest 40 years, and Nathniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So that's Othniel. And what's going on is, despite all the prior history of God's miracles and providence, the people fail to pass on that knowledge and their faith to the next generation of their sons and daughters. And the people start to do whatever they want. They don't follow God's commands. And they have problems that directly result from the disobedience. And this is kind of summarized in the last verse of Judges, if you'll recall. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I think that's what makes this book so relevant to our culture today. Our culture is predominantly relativistic meaning people do generally what they want to do. And this is causing a lot of personal pain and despair, just like what was occurring to the Hebrews. And the similarity, in fact, I think is so marked that we can put ourselves in the shoes of these people and learn directly from them. So instead of following God and the judges here, the people capitulated and they worshipped these pagan idols, the Baals and the Asherah. The Baals were um, various versions of Canaanite gods. I think we've kind of talked about it before, but Baal was a god of storms and war. The word Baal could mean lord um, or husband. And in scripture, there's various Baals that are identified. Uh, in Numbers, there's a Baal Peor. Joshua identifies a Baal Gad. There's also a Baal Barith and a Baal Zebub. And also that Asheroth is not to be confused with the Ashtaroth, that we looked at together in chapter 2. Ashtaroth was a female consort of Baal. Asheroth was a Syrian goddess of the sea. So there was a lot of these types of um, pagan entities that were worshipped. And that distinction between those two, that can be confirmed if you take a look at ancient Syrian literature. Um, and then there's this king, Kushan time. Let's all say that together three times, three times fast kidding um, he was a he was a Mesopotamian king or principal and he was from a place called Syria of the two rivers or Aram Naharim and that's probably in what is now modern northern Syria um, and if you'll take a look at this map I've got behind me um, it's not on the map so he was probably up to the northeast of that um, which means that he would have traveled pretty far if I can get this to work so Othniel and, and Judah are down here in the south Okay, this is where this narrative's taking place. Kushan's up here. So he's coming all the way down to the southwest to take on tribe of Judah and oppress them. Um, and his name, Kushan, it means Kushan of double wickedness. And so I think it's probably fair to say that he was a bad actor, okay? And he had control of the Hebrew people for eight years. and So the, the people are suffering in the midst of it. God knows it. Right, But I'm willing to bet you that there were people who were standing around saying stuff like, hey, this is a bad deal. Somebody really should do something about this, don't you think? And then there comes Othniel, and he comes in just at the right time. Um, He takes on and defeats the enemy. So Othniel is the first of the major judges that we see in, in the book of Judges. And his character here is exemplary, and that's why he's number one. He's the model judge. From Judah. And so, in effect, he becomes a standard, Othniel becomes a standard by which to judge the other judges by, if that makes sense. He was exemplary. And we've actually got quite a bit of background information on Othniel. Um, He was mentioned in the the book of Joshua, and he was mentioned in the first chapter of Judges, too. And so, uh, essentially, if you'll recall, during that initial campaign in the land of Canaan, Caleb, remember Caleb and Joshua? Caleb ran into a stronghold that included giants, and it was in a place called Kiriath-Saphir, and it was down in the south. Um, and it was, a, it was a place that eventually became known as Hebron. Uh, Othniel volunteered to attack it, and he did so successfully. And by doing so, uh, after he defeated these giants in their stronghold, Othniel garnered the favor of a young bride, and then he acquired personal land acquisition. So he's already kind of a hero, and he's a leader. And but now it's not just a minor battle, right? He's not just seeking personal glory. This takes her way higher. He's uh, got to go save his people from an evil dictator. That's the kind of thing that we see here. And, and it's apparent at first that the Lord sold Israel, uh, the people, into the hand of Cushan. But what we don't see is that the Lord also sold Cushan into the hands of Othniel, all right? And that means that God's sovereign over all of this. God's sovereign over difficult situations and he still is and so I think that's an important principle here God's loving he's just he's compassionate we see that character of the Lord and we see that he sends a deliverer it's the judges cycle but all those things combined means that God's in control of all the events that transpire according to his purposes and it was probably difficult to see at the beginning of that for those people And so we can learn from Othniel on a human level, but we should also see how God is working on a sovereign level, on a divine level. Um, And then there's a really long rest period here in the text. It's 40 years. And that's a lot longer compared to other rest periods after later judges like Deborah or Gideon. And and so that's significant. Um, Othniel would have judged that entire period too. So so he was probably wise, right, in social matters, civic matters, and he wasn't just this skillful battlefield commander. So he sort of establishes this typical pattern of the judges. That's why he's a model for it. And, and then his, his judgeship is sort of at the beginning of what's a linear decline of the integrity of the judges and of the Hebrew people. Um, and we can see that as the book progresses. So he's the standard in that fashion, too. God used Othniel here. But Othniel made himself available, and he accepted the call of duty that God gave him. He was a hero. He won in the end. And I, I, I really like this. It, my family will tell you this, and if you know me, um, I love stories like this. Um, I don't watch movies. I don't read books unless I know the good guys win in the end. I just don't. I don't waste my time with anything else. Why would we? There's so much other drama in our lives. This guy, Othniel, is perfect. So I love it. And I love studying it this week. Um, but what was the secret to his success? That, that should be the question. Here's a guy. We like the guy. But why was he successful? Well, it wasn't his own personal strength or power. Okay? Othniel's ultimate victory wasn't his own doing. The Spirit of the Lord came on him. The Lord was with Othniel. Because of that, Othniel relied on the Lord. So The sending of the Spirit we see that occurs here, it happens several times in the Old Testament, and it, and it happens several times specifically in Judges, and it usually happens when someone was getting called for service. God chose Othniel and resourced him. Othniel's strength and courage came directly from God. Othniel trusted and relied on God for it. That was the formula that bred his success. It wasn't just Othniel. But why Othniel, and and why not somebody else? Think about that. Why wasn't it somebody else? I mean, they were enslaved for eight years. There's thousands of people, right? Why didn't anyone else step in and stop Kushan? especially early on, right? When he probably had less control of the area. I'm sure there are opportunities to do it. I don't know for sure why. Um, We we can blame it on maybe they were apathetic, maybe they were lazy or something, but I'm I'm willing to bet that if you were enslaved, you wouldn't be apathetic about that. And they probably weren't lazy, otherwise they would have been starving. So it's deeper, okay? Following God's commands in this case, And God's calling for Othniel, it risked personal loss, required self sacrifice. And I'm sure that there were other guys during that period that were worried about the um, threat of physical harm to themselves or their families or loss of status or wealth or, or whatever. Um, but there was risk for loss, right? If they did the right thing. And so, um, but we see Othniel, he did it. And he also did it despite probably having a young family, which I think is is marked. But he didn't do it alone. He couldn't have done it alone. He trusted and relied on God. He had faith. He knew what was right. God was with him. God would resource him, and God would ultimately deliver him. And I think our situation is no different. There's still a need for people to step into the gaps, so to speak, and push back against opposition sometimes, whether that's moral or or spiritual or even physical. Um, Look, I think this is probably what this looks like in our culture. We're not not in a physical conflict, okay? But I do think the conflict is here on a societal level. Um, There's lots of different worldviews that directly compete with biblical Christianity. People's moral compass... Is essentially based on whatever feels good to them or whatever humanity sees as best and necessary for their own future progress. Humans decide how they should operate at the expense of absolute moral standards that should be based on biblical principles. I think that's the truth of it, which means that we are living in a world full of lies versus truth. And I think that conflict affects us everywhere now. So what do we do? What do we do about that? Well, I'm not suggesting we go picking a fight, okay? Um, that's not what I'm saying. But I am suggesting that we stand our ground. I think one of the best ways to do this is to simply refuse to affirm a lie. Um, this is what Rod Dreher had to say about this type of a thing. I want you to think about this while I read it. He said, you may not have the strength to stand up in public and say what you really believe. But you can at least refuse to affirm what you do not believe. So practically, if you're faced with an issue at work or at home or at school, that conflicts with what you know is true and good, simply don't comply. Don't participate. Call it out for what it is. That type of action will speak volumes Stand firm in the truth. And we don't have to wait for the Spirit to fall on us either, right? As believers, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is also with us in adversity. The Apostle John records that Christ reassured his followers that the Spirit would be present with them during physical persecution. So Othniel here becomes a model for what each Christ follower is then capable of. He's not the only one that's a good example, though. There's two other men in this chapter that could be in hero um, included in, in a lineup um, of heroes. And so this, this story continues in verse 12, if you want to follow along with me. We go to the next character, the next judge. It says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord strengthened Eglon." the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel. And they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So now it's a little bit like a broken record, right, because of the repeated failure. But it's like that for a couple reasons. At first, it's simply a true account of human nature that repetitively does the wrong thing even when it knows what's right. That's what happened to the Hebrews. And second, the cycle's repeated because that is normally what it takes for us to learn in order to teach people, repetition. And so, but now the nemesis is Eglon from Moab and he teams up with Ammon and Amalek. Moab was, you can see on the map, there was east of the Dead Sea. It's in the territory between the river Aron and the river Zered. Um, And it's a territory, by the way, that should have been occupied by Reuben. And Moab, throughout the Old Testament, and also in the prophetic books, is recorded as sort of a perennial enemy of Israel. And Ammon, the um, the ally of, of Moab, would have been up here on the north, and then Amalek would have been down here on the south. So it's sort of a trifecta, and they can kind of do this pinching maneuver on, on uh, the Hebrews. The city of Palms in there is Jericho, and so that was sort of central and would have become sort of their strategic center for this alliance. And, and then there's the subjugation. Here, in this case, it's actually worse than what it was before. Previously, it was eight years under Kushan. Now you've got 18 years under Eglon. That's a long time. But we can be reassured God's sovereign. He's still in control over the scenario, and he sees their suffering. And in verse 15, it says, But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword, which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned away from the idols, which were at Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, the king, said, keep silence. And all who attended him left him. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat, and Ehud stretched out his left hand, and he took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Now, essentially, what happens after that is that the king dies. Um, Ehud locks the doors from the inside, and he escapes out of a breezeway, a vestibule. And, and uh, Eglon's servants, the king's servants, didn't find out that their king was dead for a while. I, I don't know, several minutes at least, and long enough for Ehud to escape. Okay, So this is like it's, it's planned out. Um, there is some strategy here. And if you read the next several verses, there are some pretty graphic details in there about the king's death. And, and I won't go into it this morning. All right? But I will say, if you read it, Uh, that details like this give this narrative credence. You probably wouldn't want to record a story like this, and it was actually true. And so now we have Ehud, and I I think this discussion about his left hand is interesting. It's something for us to look at, at least. Uh, He was a Benjamite, and and Benjamin means son of the right hand. So Ehud was an anomaly. He's left-handed, like me. All right. Are there any other lefties here? good it's also possible some 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 uh, commentators think that maybe he was handicapped in some way that limited his right hand Um, that's possible the emphasis of the story though is on the use of his left hand and how he used it as a warrior Um, and he wasn't the only left-handed Benjamite either in chapter 20 if you read the the whole book of Judges it gives an account of 700 left-handed Benjamite warriors and they were mentioned because of their skill in warfare so Ehud could have been similar, and he was also skilled in craftsmanship. Um, he apparently was able to fashion his own weapon, uh, would have been like a double-edged sword, would have been straight instead of curved, would have been about 18 inches long. And then, and then he straps it to his right thigh, right, because he's left-handed, instead of left thigh if you were right-handed. So, so that's a significant part of the story, too. Um, I think the writer of could Hebrews have, could have used this. In Hebrews uh, chapter 14 and verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says, God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword. And in the case of Ehud's message to Eglon, God's word was a two-edged sword. That's what happens here. So ehuds uh, he's a leader. He's, he's leading this convoy of tribute. They're, so they're paying off um, the evil king, right? And, and it's got animals, probably gold or silver or precious commodities or stuff like that. and and he gets it to the king and when he completes his mission they take off they leave the king's palace and at a certain point at Gilgal he basically he he doubles back but he's by himself and he comes back to the king and he's got some sort of intrigue um, and, and he earns Eglon's trust so he can get into his personal chamber and because he has this sword right strapped to his right thigh then he gets past security I, we don't know for sure, but I think about it, it was probably a pat-down, right? He's probably got some guards outside or whatever, and they pat him down. Well, they're, they're looking here. They're not looking here. So he gets past security. Um, they miss him. And then Ehud assassinates him. And it gets even better. In verse 26, it says, Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols, and he escaped to Sirah. And it came about that when he had arrived, that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in the front of them. And he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men and no one escaped so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land was undisturbed for 80 years Ehud's not a coward here is he he's clever he's courageous he's got a plan he's also disciplined against his enemies he's a warrior he's a leader and some of these details, I think we can read in between the lines. Ehud's thrusting the dagger and the sounding the trumpet. It's the same verb in Hebrew. And it gives both of those actions equal significance. Um, after his palace escape, all right, he's got to go and marshal an army. So, so think about this. He would have had uh, probably a predetermined rally point. right? He would have had to have been a good, clear speaker, talked to a big army. He would have had the confidence of his soldiers to be with them. Um, And then he displays good leadership because he can delegate tasks and he coordinates troop movement really well And he also understood the tactical significance of the fords of the Jordan Um, Whoever controlled the fords of the Jordan Controlled the escape route of their enemies. All right, so because the Moabites would have been on the west side And to get home they would have had to go back across it They got around they could cut them off. They could envelop their enemy and this actually happens, this is interesting, this actually happens three times in Judges. Gideon does it and Jephthah does it. They use the same strategy. So perhaps Ehud read military history. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he did. Um, but they struck down approximately 10,000 enemy soldiers, and so it's an overwhelming victory. You know, in a modern battlefield like this, like a Civil War battlefield, probably would have several books written about it. And Instead, we get one sentence. Um, So we see Ehud wins uh, a big victory, but it's Yahweh, remember, on the divine level, who's sovereign, who's ultimately responsible. The Lord raised up Ehud as a deliverer or savior for his people. So accordingly, think about this. It's, It's just like Othniel. Ehud's victory occurred by trusting in the Lord and not from his own strength and skill. So he's a hero. Um, And there's a third man in here, a third judge, that has even more information buried behind one sentence. And it's the last verse, it's verse 31, it says, After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So here's Shamgar. Shamgar could have been a nickname, actually, for son of battle or son of war. He was a judge. it was a deliverer and a savior, just like Ehud, just like Othniel. And and it says he he killed 600 enemy fighters over his career. We don't know if that was one battle or over the course of a lifetime. The only real good detail we have about Shamgar is that he used an ox goad. Um, Here's a picture of one. We don't know if it's just like the one Shamgar had but an ox goat is a stick okay and on one end, it's got this sharpened point and and that was used for directing animals like oxen and and then on the other side would have been like a sharpened chisel that would have been used for cleaning a plow and it would have been eight to ten feet long so it'd been pretty unwieldy um, it was an agricultural implement and so the fact I think the fact that Shamgar used this weapon suggests that he used whatever resources he had I think it further suggests he didn't make excuses like maybe I need better equipment or maybe I need better training or maybe I need more men or more money or whatever it is. Shamgar served in the gap here and he did what he was called to do. God used him to overcome the enemy um, against odds with limited resources and he displays incredible bravery and courage in doing so. And the fact that there's so little information on Shamgar puts him into the category of the minor judges. And the minor judges are six judges throughout this book where there's very little information written about. All right? Sometimes saying a little says a lot. Uh, As the narratives of the major judges, as they get longer and longer, like Samson, um, the characters become more flawed. The longer narratives result in us learning more and more about what not to do. All right? So the, the fact that Shamgar gets one sentence implies that he did well honored God, and nothing more needs said. It was sort of like well-done, good, and faithful servant. So there's three judges. There's Ehud, Othniel, and Shamgar. They delivered the people at great odds and at risk to themselves in a heroic fashion. These guys honored God when others were unwilling to, but they weren't heroes by themselves. They did what they were able to do because they relied on the Lord. So their power, their strength, their skill, their courage was all sourced from God, and they trusted God for it. That's the main principle here in this chapter, is that we should rely on the Lord for strength and courage. Our strength and courage should come from God. Human initiative is great for training. Some people are going to have more talents than others. Some people will be more stoic. Than others, but humans alone will eventually fail by themselves. Real heroes rely on God as their source of strength and courage. And it follows that if we will simply trust and honor God in difficulty, even when the odds are great, we can accomplish great things as well. Dr. Warren Wearsby said something similar. This is what he said Never underestimate the good. That one person can do who is filled with the Spirit of God and obedient to the will of God. Don't underestimate him. So, if I ask myself, why doesn't somebody do something, right, about the situation? Well, the answer could be that somebody should, and that person's me. And as believers, we're resourced by the infinite God through whom all things are possible. Please don't underestimate that. So, now we could certainly model our character after some of these judges. Um, but what can we take away from the rest of the people that are in the narrative? Um, the people that were subjugated, the people that were suffering, um, the people that needed rescued. Because we are those people as well, right? Especially on a personal level. So, no matter how hard we try, We're not going to be perfect in how we handle difficulty, and we're definitely not going to be perfect on how we handle our sin nature. We can't save ourselves, no matter how much human initiative I try to throw at it. So just like the people in Judges, we've got to look to God to save us, to deliver us. And we are thankfully reminded over and over and over again in Judges that God delivers his people. I also want you to remember that the role of the judge should point us to the hopeful reality of an ultimate deliverer who is Jesus Christ. The psalmist said, as for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me. Christ is that ultimate savior and deliverer. He's the real hero that we're looking for. And he wants us to follow him. You know, during the Judges period, God gave physical deliverance and salvation in the form of the Judges. Similarly, God gives us deliverance and salvation through Christ. This is salvation from the consequences of sin and death because of the cross, right? Instead of death, we have life and eternity in heaven. We don't just have 40 or 80 years of a rest period. We have an eternity. Christ can spiritually deliver us from the powers of evil now And help us to directly conquer sinful patterns in our lives. Because of Christ then, our lives are changed. I have eternal hope now. I have real hope in a future that doesn't disappoint. That means I should never despair. And don't forget about Christ's physical power. He's the creator God, just like in Colossians. That means he can alter physical circumstances and defeat enemies to the advantage of his people any day, according to his will. And if you look around, providence happens constantly. And we are also looking forward to a completion of that physical deliverance, right? One day he's going to come back and he's going to defeat his enemies once and for all. Christ is going to return creation to its originally intended and blissful state, I think. And if this is all true, okay, and we are actually seeking God instead of ourselves to deliver us from our problems or the problems in our lives, then the answer is actually pretty simple. It's that we should trust Christ for our salvation. That's what it leads us to. Because there's nothing else and no one else who can deliver us. But we can place our trust and hope in Christ the Lord, and he will become our source of strength and courage. He's our salvation. You know, today's culture I don't think is, is uh, very similar to the judges, right? Uh, we have technology, we have different governments, um, a lot of history in between now and then. <clears throat> but humans aren't really different, and human systems are generally the same. Problems still exist today, just like they did then. And we're definitely still in a spiritual battle against evil, just like they were then. So there's always going to be a need for this type of person, a hero. And God is seeking men and women who will do his will and honor him, even when it's difficult. And it's possible to do. But in order to do it, we must rely on Christ the Lord. The judges are a good example of this. It's a parallel. They relied on the Lord. We should rely on the Lord. They had the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. They had faith despite odds. We can have faith despite odds. That's on a human level. On the divine level, God knows us. He knows we're flawed. We're ultimately unable to save ourselves, though. So he sent himself to us in the incarnate form as Christ to deliver us once and for all. And he sent his spirit to believers so that we will never be alone or under-resourced in adversity. And previously I mentioned the founding fathers. Um, I think they were good examples of men of virtue and character. When they wrote and they signed the Declaration of Independence, it was a courageous thing to do. Uh, you know, they risked everything that they had for what they knew was true and good. And in that regard, they were heroic. But do you know where they got the courage to do that, the courage to do what they did by writing and signing the declaration? I'll let you guess. It wasn't false bravado. Um, It it wasn't a guarantee of security um, or power after the Revolutionary War was over. Those men risked all because of their direct reliance on the Lord. This is what it says in the last lines of our Declaration of Independence. It says, for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. That's what they relied on. We mutually pledged to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. They trusted the Lord, and he was their source of strength and courage. And I think we can do the same thing. We can do it on big scales. We can do it on small scales. Trust Christ. In the midst of our adversity, in the midst of despair in our lives, make Christ your source of strength and courage. Let him deliver you. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for book of Judges. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the wonderful history that's in it. Thank you for the wonderful characters that are in it. Um, Thank you for the principles that are in it that are timeless. Um, I pray that we could take this message to heart. Um, Thank you for the examples of these men and their great faith. Not just what they did, but their faith in you. And I pray that that would increase our faith as well. I pray that you would help us to examine our own lives and see where you have called us to and give us the strength to do those things. I pray that you would give us strength to stand in a culture that doesn't honor you. And we're thankful for personal deliverance through Christ. I uh, thank you for salvation, eternal hope. And if we haven't made that personal step of faith to follow you, I pray that we would. If we have, I pray that we would increase our faith you would continue to give us the strength to follow you closer. We ask all these things and give you honor. In Christ's name, amen.